Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. But if I were to sit down with the president-elect, I'd say you have two ways to see China. You can see China through a fear prism, and you can you can articulate uh, the U.S.-China relationship through fear to the American people, which I think does it a, a disservice. Uh, or you can articulate it through a prism of, of opportunity, uh, which I think uh, there is a lot of on both sides. Hello, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. And I'm Daniel Moss, executive editor for global economics at Bloomberg in New York. Uh, So, Dan, we we heard a lot about China during the past year's election campaign. President-elect Donald Trump spent a lot of time bashing China, talking about how it's manipulated its currency, taken jobs away from Americans. He's also pledged to pull out of a Pacific Rim trade accord, which gives China an opening to do its own big pan-Asian trade deals. And while we're on transitions, China is going through one of its own. The ruling Communist Party is gearing up to elect, their words, its new leadership team late next year. The speculation that President Xi Jinping, who took office as party secretary in 2012, could set himself up to lead the nation beyond 10 years, which would break with recent practice and harken back to the days of Chairman Mao. And in addition to a political transition, the country is also going through a profound economic transition. The China that Trump ranted and raved about during the campaign sounds like the low-cost, low-end sweatshop image stuck in the 1990s. But today, it's not really about t-shirts in Guangdong province. It's about the Starbucks sprouting up all around the suburbs of Beijing and Shanghai. We have a distinguished guest today who can offer insight, like few others, on China's economy and politics. John Huntsman served as U.S. ambassador to China in the early years of the Obama administration, and before that, elected twice as Republican governor of Utah, He's now co-chairman with Joe Lieberman of No Labels, a group trying to push a non-partisan economic agenda. He's also chairman of the Atlantic Council, a think tank in D.C., and let us not forget, briefly ran for president. John, we really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Dan. Scott, it's a pleasure to be with you. John, I just described Trump's image of China, one that probably looms large in the minds of many Americans. You were there for two years as ambassador, visited there many times, uh, have deep connections there. How much of that picture that Trump described is true? And if you were briefing him on China, what would you tell him? Well, I think you have to see China. Uh, first of all, let's recognize where we are. We're in the political season. We're ending one aspect of uh, the 2016 political season. We're about to start the governing aspects of presidential politics. While at the same time in China, uh, you've also got a, a, a political dynamic playing out in the run-up to the 19th Party Congress, which will take place about a year from now. Party Congresses they have every five years and have since the death of Mao Zedong in 1976. So the peculiarity here is that you've got politics playing out in the United States, and we're about to begin a political season in China, and they're almost running into each other in the form of a head-on collision. 
which means on both sides, we're going to hear most uh, more nativist talk, uh, more nationalistic talk. We're going to talk about closing markets, not opening them. We're going to hear more about saber rattling as opposed to collaboration. I think this is to be expected. But if I were to sit down with the president-elect, I'd say you have two ways to see China. You can see China through a fear prism, and you can you can articulate uh, the U.S.-China relationship through fear to the American people, which I think does it a, a disservice. Uh, or you can articulate it through a prism of, of opportunity, uh, which I think uh, there is a lot of on both sides. But you have to carefully balance the two, to be sure. You have to recognize that we have some irreconcilable differences. You can spend a lot of time talking about them, but in the end, there are no easy solutions. But as we talk about those don't forget that we're, we're, we're wasting a lot of time by not talking about areas of commonality and collaboration. Uh, and they include uh, economic opportunities, both on uh, trade and investment, uh, on intellectual property protection, uh, on the advancement of technology, uh, opening markets where they are closed, uh, helping China in making its transition from the old investment-led export model to more of a consumption model, which is very good for U.S. exports longer term. Uh, and there are a lot of areas of commonality on the security side, uh, notwithstanding uh, our friction in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. Let's not forget we have a, a common cause as it relates to counterterrorism. Uh, we both want to calm down uh, the Middle East. Uh, we want to make sure that the supply and the trade routes are, are protected for purposes of prosperity. And we want to be prepared uh, for disaster relief uh, when disaster strikes, how we can go to the aid of, uh, of those affected countries. So there's a lot to be done uh, on, the, uh, on the positive side of the ledger, but we have to manage the downside uh, friction as well, which is never an easy thing. So is the politics driving the economics at this moment, or is the economics driving the politics? Well, that's, that's a very, very good question. I, I would say politics are driving much of the economics because there is evidence that economics are driving some of the fear uh, and anxiety that people feel here in the United States. Uh, so, so I suspect we're going to see some early clashes uh, in, the, uh, in the Trump administration. He has said that he would cite China as a currency manipulator. So let's just say that he does that uh, on day one, which he said he, he would do. That takes us to January 20 or 21. Uh, the Treasury Department, which manages these issues, has a semi-annual report to Congress uh, on currency manipulating countries. Uh, the next one up is, is in April. So if this just plays out as, as it might, uh, you could have China uh, deemed a currency manipulator, which is in words only. But I suspect there may be some appetite on Capitol Hill, given that you've got uh, a new balance of power uh, on the Republican side in Congress that might want to stand behind Donald Trump uh, because it does play well politically back home. And there are reasons that China is not playing by uh, the playbook that uh, everyone agreed to, at least under uh, the WTO accession documents back, back in 2001. Uh, and if China were, or if, uh, if the U.S. Congress were to slap sanctions onto a currency manipulation bill, you could have some early days that that uh, would include some, some back and forth uh, on the economic side because China would then retaliate, of course, in kind. And then you'd see a spiraling out of control of the bilateral trade and economic relationship until some equilibrium was found. A little bit like the tires case early on in the Obama administration. The great irony of this, though, is if China's manipulating the currency now, it's to prevent it from weakening. How Why would the, Donald Trump yeah. want a weaker yuan? 
Well, th- this is where you've got to sit down with the economists and you, you have to you have to get the real story. So uh, are they purposefully manipulating the renminbi or is it uh, taken uh, down as a result of uh, an economy that is performing poorly uh, and capital outflows? Uh, are they, you know, so they're protecting their currency to the tune of maybe 60 to 100 billion dollars a month and have been for many months which has taken their their foreign exchange reserves from four trillion maybe down to three point one where it sits today, so I think these are emergency measures that the Chinese are taking just taking just to keep the currency afloat, uh, not manipulating for purposes of cheap uh, cheap exports. So once the the the, the facts are on the table, uh, and that rarely is the case when you're in the middle of a campaign. But once you're president, you got to take a look at the facts and then and then base policy on that. You you might have you might have a different outcome. Well, you have a a, a Democratic Senate leader Chuck Schumer who who has been uh, you know leading this issue for many years to call China a currency manipulator. He has a kindred spirit, it seems now, in uh, President-elect Trump. Is there anything? I mean, you say that maybe when they see the facts on the ground, they might they might halt. Is there anything to to really stop them now, or do you think you know we're we're really on the verge of of going down that road? I, I suspect there there will be uh, a fulfillment of Trump's promise to cite them as a currency manipulator. I think the question will then become: Are there punitive sanctions that back up those words from Congress? Uh, and uh, if there are, I think we're in for. Uh, you know, a wild ride economically in the first uh, six months. So this is an example of a president uh, fulfilling their campaign promise. And I think the Chinese on the other side are, are fully prepared for that. The question will be, how do they then retaliate? And does that cause a counter-retaliation and then a spiraling out of control of the economic relationship, uh, which uh, uh, makes it more difficult to invest, to trade, uh, there's a loss in confidence overall and that we we wipe out a year or two of productive economic engagement. The, the I think the first few months will really be telling. Well, and to be fair, Donald Trump was not the first presidential candidate to bash China on the campaign trail. Bill Clinton famously referred to the butchers of Beijing. Yet, if anything, the economic relationship with China became far more intimate under his administration. How do you see this shaking out in reality? Well, you can go all the way back to Ronald Reagan. I remember because I worked for him when he talked about moving our ambassador out of Beijing. Remember, we we, we had the fulfillment of the Shanghai communique in 1979 under Jimmy Carter. Our ambassador went from Taipei to Beijing. Ronald Reagan talked about bringing him back to Taipei uh, and uh, then made a famous trip. I was on that trip with him as part of the staff in the early 1980s uh, and spoke to a billion Chinese people on, uh, on live television. Uh, and had warm discussions with Deng Xiaoping and some of the other early leaders where they talked about most favored nation trade, they talked about nonproliferation. You never would have guessed that in the heat of the 1980 campaign. And the same you cite with Bill Clinton, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. So the governing aspects of the U.S.-China relationship are are a lot different than the campaign aspects of the U.S.-China relationship. So once in office, you have to look at your stakes, your equities, uh, and uh, and how you can manage what clearly is a most important relationship of the 21st century. Now, now you might be a little biased on this question, but how, how much does it matter who the president-elect picks as his ambassador to China, and how important is the ambassador's role in managing that relationship compared with, say, the president or the secretary of state or the treasury secretary? I think the, and I am a little bit biased, uh, having served in, the, in that position, 
I, I think the ambassador in Beijing is disproportionately important uh, because uh, the part of the role is to explain the U.S. system uh, to Chinese leaders, uh, to party leaders, who, who oftentimes are very confused about how we do business. Uh, and then uh, on the flip side, it's to explain to senior leaders in the U.S. government how uh, the Chinese side works uh, and how through it all we can actually come up with, uh, with a strategy a bilateral strategy to get a few things done. Uh, because the stakes are so high on both sides and because both uh, are members of the UN Security Council, both are nuclear armed, we've got the two largest economies on the face of the earth, growing numbers of disputes, uh, it's ever important to have a an ambassador who can carry messages back and forth. Uh, but in the end, let's face it, uh, it really will depend on how much skin the president wants to put in the game. So if you want to just sort of manage the downside uh, without any uh, sense of building the upside capacity, you can do that. Uh, you can sort of manage downside friction and risks and all of that, but you, you lose the upside potential of the relationship. We haven't had in quite some time, uh, and, and I would say Richard Nixon tried to do this when he kicked off the relationship shortly after uh, 1972, is, is managing a true strategic dialogue which takes a little bit of what the Chinese want and what the United States want, uh, but it's sort of countercultural for us because we're short-term thinkers, uh, we're more transactional, we negotiate in ways that achieve a certain defined outcome. The Chinese, on the other hand, want to think in terms of 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, and we haven't been able to really strike a long-term strategic relationship that spell out our goals over a long period of time. And I would advocate for any uh, incoming uh, president of the United States to build uh, a, a strategy vis-a-vis -vis China that serves U.S. interests, that brings on a bilateral basis problem solvers together in State Department, Treasury, Commerce, uh, Defense Department in ways that do more than just talk about the tactical, but are able to engage in more of the strategic. Just going back to your time on White House staff in the 80s again, does this sound like the way people talked about the U.S.-Japan relationship back in the 80s and the early 90s? In terms of economic mercantilism, uh, yes, uh, because I was also in a trade uh, position in, in the 80s, uh, which brought me in contact uh, with Japan. Uh, and we had the Structural Impediments Initiative. Uh, you know, we had uh, all kinds of concerns about their mercantilistic uh, behavior and activity only to find you know, and tremendous levels of investments coming in the United, into the United States, buying a lot of trophy uh, uh, investments that are well known by, by most of your listeners. Uh, and, and that all came to an end. And the structural efficiencies were never adequately addressed uh, in, in Japanese policymaking, and they still exist today. Uh, I would say in the case of China, it is a, a more resilient economy. It's mercantilistic today. One of the big problems uh, is you've got state-owned enterprises, 150,000 of them, uh, that have not been touched, uh, that have gone uh, uh, beyond uh, being reformed. Uh, some of them have been built up in recent years, as a matter of fact. And, and they are uh, uh, backwaters of, of inefficiencies, uh, sweetheart contracts for princeling, uh, uh, princeling members of Chinese society. They get discounted capital, they get cheaper raw materials, uh, and they basically engage in nas nationalistic uh, business practices. A and no one has had the political will to take them on. Uh, and I suspect that if, if the third plenum reforms that Xi Jinping talked about after the 
last party Congress, the 18th Party Congress in 2012, if the 13th or if the third plenum reforms, which were talked about uh, in the end of 2013, are to come to fruition, which really get to the heart and soul of cleaning up the system, the state-owned enterprises are going to have to be uh, dealt with realistically, brought down, uh, bankrupted, uh, a new debt market established in order to accommodate some of the inefficiencies. If, if that isn't done, I think the Chinese economy is in for long-term serious problems. Japan never dealt with those inefficiencies, and we're seeing what, what, what that has brought about. I was there three years ago for those the announcement of those third plenum reforms, and we're still waiting for uh, some of them to, uh, to, to be implemented. Uh, let's leave that thought there and take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. And we're back. John, let's turn to China's so-called elections. That's the word they use, but at all levels, the candidates are picked by the Communist Party, so anyone who votes doesn't actually have a choice of candidates. We don't get to see the kinds of deals and machinations that happen behind the scenes that they do to choose the leaders all the way up to the top level. And yet, when you take a long view of it, this authoritarian system has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, kept the economy growing at a relatively rapid pace, and made China into a global power. They like to criticize the way democracy works in the U.S. and other Western nations. Is there any merit in their viewpoint? Well, I would also say they achieved that success through doing it the old-fashioned way and the and the easy way, which is bashing your currency, drawing on cheap labor, and ex exporting products to the major markets of the world while keeping your own domestic markets relatively locked up. Uh, and now they're hitting the, the middle income trap, which is causing a new reality for them. They have to transition into a consumption model in order for their economy to prosper longer term and for, and for people to move more into uh, uh, the middle income categories into the middle class. So I see coming with that a lot of opportunities for the United States. I see more uh, more purchasing power on the part of uh, a consumer class that will be hundreds of millions strong, which is great for U.S. exports. The Chinese love to buy U.S. products where they're available, and I think increasingly we'll find more and more opportunity there. And I think on the investment side, we'll see more in the way of Chinese investment here in the United States that will run more in parallel with, with U.S. investment in, in China. We're already seeing evidence of that. And the political implications, of course, will be fairly profound domestically as Xi Jinping tries to keep hold of a one-party system, which doesn't want to be a one-party system. Let's talk about that shift to consumption uh, for a moment. Do you feel that uh, the shift away from exports and fixed asset investment to service as a consumption, do you think that is broadly understood in the United States? In other words, it's not your grandfather's Chinese economy anymore. No, no, it, it isn't. Uh, and, I, and I don't think it's, it's largely understood. I think we're, we still see China through a prism that is maybe dated by 20 years. We're, we're not looking at online purchases, which if you <laughs> so don't look at uh, inventories of steel uh, and, and coal and aluminum, uh, which are uh, off the charts high. 
uh, that that's not a good leading indicator of where China's economy is going. It's where it's been. Uh, the leading indicators really are are, are online sales. Uh, look at travel and tourism. Look at airline uh, seats uh, being purchased. Uh, look at outbound tourism. Uh, look at legal uh, and architectural services. Look at education and healthcare services. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. And what is exciting for me is the United States does extremely well in many of these service-related areas. And once the markets are more and more open uh, and we're able to define the China of the 21st century as opposed to the late uh, 20th century, I think we'll have more in the way of opportunities. So it would be ironic if we got into a trade war with China based on a part of the Chinese economy that effectively is over anyway. Is, effect, is effectively over. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, you know, the, the, the bloom is off the rose from a manufacturing standpoint. The, the golden days are, are gone. Uh, China's uh, uh, labor rates are, are, are on, the, on the rise. You've got more people leaving the workforce than entering the workforce. By 2020, they could be deficit 20 million workers. Uh, and who's picking it up? We'll take a look south uh, in, into Vietnam, India, Bangladesh, and beyond. Uh, so China is fundamentally entering uh, a new playing field uh, from an economic standpoint. And, and we do ourselves a disservice by not identifying properly where they're going and what, therefore, the uh, opportunities are for U.S. investors and traders. Why isn't that breaking through? Well, remember, uh, Dan, that we're still in uh, a political season. And when you're in a political season, you don't talk by way of opportunities. You talk by way of fear. Uh, and when you talk by way of fear, you talk about deficits, you talk about threats, you talk about foreign investment uh, that is taking away jobs, you talk about uh, saber-rattling on the security side. So now that we're beyond that, uh, it'll be very interesting to see if, uh, if President-elect Trump is able to take the U.S.-China relationship and sort it out into something that represents less fear and more opportunity for job creation here in the United States, U.S. export potential. Uh, and an overall economic relationship that, of course, is going to be uh, riddled with challenges and problems, but also uh, there will be plenty of opportunities. Talking about the uh, current political situation in the United States and turning away from China, we, we can't let you go without asking a few questions about what's going on here right now. And uh, one of the, the major stories in the news is whether Mr. Trump will pick uh, Mitt Romney, your fellow former Utah governor, as uh, Secretary of State. How do you think Governor Romney would do as as a Secretary of State? Well, it's not even worth my spec speculating on any uh, potential candidates. I, I think President-elect Trump has a pretty good sense of where he wants to take the world. Uh, I think it will be important to have people who are uh, of common mind uh, as they see where he wants to go. Clearly, uh, there were some uh, international affairs, foreign policy themes that came through in the campaign, and they included uh, the Middle East. We've been there too long. There's too much of an overhang. Some, that's got to be addressed. Uh, trade uh, was prominent, uh, which is a big foreign policy issue, uh, and that was we've got to get trade agreements that are, that are fair to American workers. And immigration was the third big area. That is a foreign policy issue. So I suspect that if these three areas are going to be prominent uh, in uh, in the early days of a Trump administration, he's got to have people around him who are fluent and conversant in uh, where he wants to take uh, the United States and what is uh, uh, an increasingly disaggregated world. And have you had a telephone call? 
<laughs> uh, I've had a telephone call. And, and what was the purpose of that? Just a, just a congratulatory call. To Mr. Trump. Yeah. We can't also let you leave here without asking a question about your own personal plans. You're, you're here with us in D.C. today, but your roots are in Utah. You're a, a popular governor there for some time. Uh, you're, uh, you've actually partially moved back to Utah, kind of splitting your time. And I've read that there, there's a speculation that you're considering a run for the U.S. Senate from Utah in 2018. Is that true? Well, listen, we've, Utah's home. I was, I was born and raised in California. I was raised in Utah. I've spent time overseas, living overseas four times. Uh, Utah's our home, uh, and we feel pretty passionately about that. And we've, we've gone back and forth the last uh, few years, uh, and we're looking forward to spending more and more of our time there. I've always said that I've got one more run left in our bones, and I, I don't know what that will be. But I love this country. I've got two sons serving in uniform. Uh, I have always believed that our best days are ahead, and we're going to take a good look at uh, it, it, it may be a, a future Senate run in the state of Utah. And w would you run as an independent or as a Republican? Well, I've been a Republican my entire life. Uh, I've watched the Republican Party go through different phases trying to, f trying to find itself. Uh, but I'm of the party of Lincoln. I'm of the party of Roosevelt, of Eisenhower, of Ronald Reagan. I kind of know where our roots are. Uh, and I think I know where the Republican Party's roots are, and we've gone round and round trying to find them. And I think we, we might still travel some distance before finding exactly what our traditional roots are. And one more question. Would you run if Senator Hatch decides to stand for re-election? Would you run against him in a primary? Well, we'd have to decide whether or not we're, we're actually going to, to enter the race. Uh, and that, in part, would be based on what Senator Hatch chooses to do. He's been a productive senator for nearly half a century. I'm somebody personally who believes in term limits. I always have. You get in, do your job, you get out, hopefully leaving a little bit better for the next person to take over. Uh, but time will tell on that. Governor Huntsman, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really insightful and fascinating conversation. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Casts, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to and follow us on Twitter at Daniel Moss DC, at Scott Landman, and our guest at John Huntsman. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.